Hey, Curbsiders, this is Dr. Carolyn Chan, and I'm excited to announce a new mini series, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. We have 11 great episodes for you where we cover core addiction med topics tailored to the general internist, and we will be releasing these weekly episodes starting in July. I'll be joined by my co hosts, Dr. Sean Cohen, Dr. Kenny Morford, and Dr. Natalie Stahl. We believe it's important as ever for internists to play a key role in providing evidence based addiction treatment. So, be sure to tune in this summer wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more by checking out our website at thecurbsiders.com or email us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight? I've never been better, Matt. How are you doing? Paul, you know, it's a weeknight. <laughs> uh, we both had full days in clinic, and now we're recording podcasts. What could be better? I mean, I'm spending time with my friend. We're talking about diuretics. This is this is the dream. Yeah. So today, this is, this is one of the episodes where, for your space learning, we're going to talk about two great recent episodes, one on hypertension, some frequently asked questions with Dr. Jordana Cohen, and another on cardiorenal syndrome from Neff Madness featuring two great guests, Dr. Joel Toff and Dr. Sadia Khan. And, you know, on this episode, Paul, we're just going to go through our favorite pearls. I'll remind the audience that on these shorter episodes, we typically... Uh, don't make them available for CME, but the individual episodes we're talking about were both available for CME, so you can go back and claim credit for those. And Paul, I think I'm forgetting to do this. Can you tell the audience, <laughs> in case they haven't listened before, what is it that we do on the curbside? I was going to throw it in. I was like, medicine podcast, blah, 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 experts. We are the <laughs> internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And we already told you who the experts will be talking about are, even though you will not hear from them tonight. And we're just recapping these amazing episodes that I just had a chance to re-listen to recently. And as much as I hate the sound of my own voice, they're, they're both fantastic episodes. So I, I, it was nice to go back and revisit them. So first up, number 321, Hypertension FAQ with Dr. Jordana Cohen. And this was with production and graphics by the great Malini Gandhi, who is in, uh, just an up-and-coming medical student, Paul, probably going to take over the world someday. Wunderkind, and, uh, I might say, yeah. Yes, Wonderkind. There you go. So, Paul, to start off, the diagnosis of hypertension seems easy, right? Uh, just just slap a blood pressure cuff on there, and and then if it's high, person has hypertension. What's your approach to this in the office, and what are some pitfalls for the audience? Yeah, no, nailed it. Just a thigh cuff for every arm, um, ideally <laughs> over top of a coat, and hopefully a cigarette in the other hand. No, it's you know we we spend a lot of time talking about blood pressure measurement because that's that's the right thing to do. So, Matt, I think you raised this point a bunch of times. Is that you know we lean so heavily on the sprint trial as sort of guiding um, how we're treating patients these days, but that was a the study measurements and the way they did those things are, are different a lot than what we do in the clinic. And they they used these automated measurements that were done three times, then kind of averaged out, and then the patients weren't spoken to, and it was very regimented, as opposed to a lot of clinic blood pressures, which I think and I love this term that Dr. Cohen referred to as a casual blood pressure, where say the patient comes in, <laughs> the uh, perhaps the medical assistant is asking them questions as they take the blood pressure without measuring the arm. Um, perhaps the legs are crossed, perhaps the patient's just eaten, perhaps they're talking, perhaps their back is not supported. There's lots of ways where things can go south and you can get sort of maybe suboptimal numbers, I might call them. Um, yeah, and that's why yeah. 
That's why the USPSTF, Dr. Cohen, all experts recommend now confirming with a home blood pressure reading to try to make sure that you're not just capturing this casual blood pressure that looks high and it's it's uh, it's not really high at home. So I, I love that. And now I always make sure to try to confirm. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but they're either a home blood pressure monitor where the patient checks themselves. You got to instruct them how to do it. So you know, back supported, feet on the floor, arm supported, appropriate size cuff on the upper arm. And ideally you take, Dr. Cohen said she likes to take at least a couple readings over three days, usually the average of like two readings in the morning and two readings in the evening over three days. So at least six values to determine what you're going to do. And I've actually taken to trying to get extra readings before I make changes in blood pressure readings because a lot of times someone's nervous, they're running late to the appointment, or they're just nervous about seeing a physician and uh, the blood pressure is running high. So I, I really have kind of tried to get extra data and try to get the best readings possible to make my decisions about, about blood pressure medications. Yeah, I don't know if you've, if you've had a similar experience, but even for me, sometimes what I will do is I'll leave the patient to sit when I kind of get their paperwork together and kind of gather things and, and sort of as I'm sort of getting their their to-go packet together, I'll come back and, and then remeasure the blood pressure after they've yeah. been sitting quietly in the room by themselves. And the difference between that and the triage measurement is often striking and it's almost always right. uniformly lower. So I, I think that just sort of speaks to the importance of different environments and checking different contexts yeah. to make sure you have the right number. Which is probably why like the hypertensive urgency, whatever that trial was from the ER where they just like let someone rest in a quiet room for 30 minutes and recheck <laughs> the blood pressure, yep. that, that did the job most of the time. But uh, patients can go to validatebp.org, which is a website that is uh, Dr. Cohen is involved with and our, our past guest also had mentioned. And uh, that's a place you can just look to see which blood pressure cuffs are recommended. And then the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor, I know some primary care offices are set up to send pa- patients home with those. It, uh, personally, I've usually had to send people to either cardiology or nephrology to get that uh, to get that done. I'm not sure for you, Paul, if you have any tricks to getting a 24-hour monitor. No, I would. I mean, this remains a unicorn to me. You know, it's something that I would like to exist, but I'm, I, I still haven't actually seen it myself. Um, I, I used to get them all the time in a previous job, and it, it's great. It gives you this sort of like, how often are they in the red? How often are they in the green? And you can see it graphed out over time. Um, th- so that way you can see if they have like, if they're a non-dipper, are they higher exactly. when they're sleeping or during the day? You know, all that sort of thing. It's great. Well, it sounds like, you know, and this this might be the time to talk about now. I think the other benefit of having home blood pressure readings, whether it's 24-hour blood pressure monitor or just uh, out-of-office blood pressure measurement done with a home cuff that is, you know, that, that has been validated, is there are other classes of hypertension um, that you potentially diagnose that you have to have these home measurements. You have to have out-of-office right. readings to even make the measurement. So, uh, obviously, uh, talking about white coat hypertension, but then also mass hypertension. So, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll yeah, so, actually ask you to, to tell what, us a little bit about both those things. Well, how about I'll, I'll take white coat hypertension, which Dr. Cohen said classically for her, it's an older woman who's coming into the office and she thinks maybe it's like arterial stiffness. And when they're a little nervous, their blood pressure spikes. But at home, she has them do home readings and typically their blood pressure will be okay. And you can have white coat hypertension and sustained hypertension where you're, you're on medicine for blood pressure 
blood pressure is good at home, but in the office it's really high. So, uh, or or just someone who has normal blood pressure at home, not on any medicine, but in the office it's high. And uh, we do need to take that seriously. It does confer some increased risk, but not as much as someone who has sustained like high blood pressure all the time. But Paul, what's the opposite of white coat hypertension and who gets that? Yeah, so the other class, so we're taking normotension out of the equation or, or, or treated hypertension. So the other class is masked hypertension, which I just, I, I kind of forget exists sometimes. And I, I yeah. feel like trainees often do too. But this is, and it, it, I think Dr. Cohen said this is present like 25% of the population, like some alarmingly high number that made me think I, I should be doing a better job thinking about it. But this is the case where you have someone who is normotensive in the office, but then actually hypertensive at home, which is sort of the opposite of what we, I think, have yeah. been trained to recognize. And this has... It's like not fair that that exists. Yes, right, right. Like, it's, but it's there's a couple of reasons why it may exist, but it's not. It is not benign. Like that, this does um, warrant more sort of aggressive risk factor modification. And the person who typically gets this is someone who probably needs that risk factor modification. Typically, um, a man who smokes tobacco is sort of the classic one, but then also alcohol use can also. Um, be a risk factor for, as well as some of the other metabolic syndrome-y stuff, um, sort of impaired glucose tolerance, um, central BC, that kind of thing. All those things tend to lend themselves more towards mass hypertension, which you, which you have to take seriously and you have to treat. Um, yeah. And you, you would never know it exists unless you had this home blood pressure reading. Yeah. So we were talking about this earlier. I think for patients who just look like they should have high blood pressure, they have metabolic syndrome <laughs> yeah. otherwise, but their blood pressure is weirdly normal in the office. That's someone I might ask to grab a couple out of the office blood pressures just to see. I have started to do that because I'm just like, how are you not hypertensive? Like, every, you know, it, it just, <laughs> yeah, you seem right. like you have all the risk factors. And, uh, and so I, I would just recommend the audience knowing it exists is half the battle, I guess, Paul. So for Paul, let's say we've made the diagnosis of high blood pressure. Now I want to start my patient on a medication. How do you think about this classic ACE versus ARBs? I always thought they were just the same, but now maybe we know something different. Tell the audience. Yeah, I mean, this is one of my, my favorite points. I, for a long time, have favored ARBs over ACEs, um, or ACE inhibitors, I should say, just because... I, I had the sense that they probably had a better side effect profile, but it turns out there was a relatively recent meta-analysis that looked at this very thing. And all the things that we like ACE inhibitors for, in terms of being nephroprotective and in terms of being, say, good with systolic heart failure, ARBs do just as well. But in this meta-analysis, the ARBs were much likely less likely to have adverse effects than the ACEs. So things like the ACE inhibitor-associated cough or angioedema or mm -hmm. even weirdly GI bleed, which is not one that I thought about, no. um, is it happens way more with ACE inhibitors than the ARBs. So I, I, I've now... I almost never start, um, if I'm initiating a blood pressure medication, I'm thinking about um, angiotensin receptor blockade. I, it's always the ARBs now, and I almost never start an ACE. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and then in terms of which one to pick, I mean, I, I thought Dr. Cohen made some interesting points just in terms of sort of half-lives and stuff. Do you remember some of, the, some of her favorites? I do, because this was so jarring to me, uh, because <laughs> I, I was always just like, ACEs and ARBs, just pick whichever one's covered. There's no differentiation between them. But she gave us some great pearls. Her preferred agent is Olmosardin, which I will say to the audience, I know we've talked about Olmosardin on the show we before, <laughs> only in the context of Olmosardin-induced enteropathy, which looks like celiac disease and is caused by Olmosardin. Um, I don't think it's super common, so, but you do need to, 
warn patients about it. And if they start to develop like GI side effects or weird iron deficiency, um, that they're losing weight unexpectedly, think about that as, as something going on. But Olmosart, and she likes it because it's long acting and uh, it does come in combination with amlodipine, which is a calcium channel blocker. So that's that may be one of her go-to meds or combination in combination with other meds. Uh, Losartan, which if you're like me, Paul, Losartan, well, we're in the same state, so I know you are. The, the, the medication, Losartan is one of the ones that's often cheap. It's on the $4 formulary, so I'm using a lot of Losartan, but it's actually not full 24 hours. Uh, it doesn't last a full 24 hours, so ideally you dose it twice a day, which uh, I, I was not doing before now, but sometimes now if I have someone on 25 or 50 of Losartan and they're not getting that full coverage, then I might have them on it twice a day, which is not ideal because you want once-a-day medications. That's that's exactly my practice. Um, if I especially if I have someone who's maybe just a little bit suboptimally controlled, rather than increasing the dose of low certain to fifty milligrams, I'll just like say twenty five twice daily, um, yeah. and just take advantage of it and use it the way it's supposed to be used. Um, yeah. So. And then valsartan is the other one, Paul. That's on all the four dollar formularies, and that that t- seems to come in a lot of the combination pills. And that one, she said, is okay. the The duration is not the problem there; it's the potency. And uh, for the audience watching at home, uh, it's Paul and I recording, but we also have two cats in Paul who are in the studio with Paul. So, uh, Paul, <laughs> is that Ollie or Bella that's causing a problem, or are they fighting? No, that's Bella just bazzing out in the background. It's okay. fine. It just adds, yeah. It adds. A, it's it's a great environment for the podcast. Uh, Paul's cats are always recording with us, and I don't think we shout out to them enough. So. Uh, Paul, back to Valsartan. So Valsartan, <laughs> less potent. So just be aware, Losartan, not lasting a full 24 hours. Valsartan, less potent. And Dr. Uh, Cohen said if she has her druthers, Olmosartan, or even on Twitter afterwards, someone else asked her, she said Telmosartan, Candesartan, some of these other agents that have just better pharmacology and are a little more potent. Um, you can use those if you can get them uh, and they're reasonably priced. And I think the other reason, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, that she likes Olmosartan is because it's available in combination with calcium channel blocker, yeah. which is a combination she likes, which might be a good chance for us to talk about. I know you have a very specific approach in terms of combination meds. I think you're you're a new convert now. Yeah, I, I think where this came from, Paul, is I know the geriatricians have, have known this for a while, that using two meds in low dose can can give you nice control and less side effects. So my approach has been typically I'll start a two meds at a quarter dose, so say like 2.5 of amlodipine and 10 of benazepril, um, or you know you t- take your ACE or ARB, whatever you're going to start them on, and s- start them both at a quarter of the maximum dose. Uh, if it's a if it's a, a person who's older, more frail, and you're just worried about you know uh, how strong the medication is going to be for them, or I might start uh, two medications in combination at a half the maximum dose because you you really get most of the bang for your buck at the uh, at that half dose of the medication going up to the maximum dose of any blood pressure medication often has diminishing returns and they're more likely to get side effects um especially right. with amlodipine the edema is dependent uh based on the dose so that's kind of how i've started i most of the time now if if someone's really far off target like if they're if they're 20 points above goal, I'm going to start them on two medicines in combination right from the get-go rather than start just one agent and take six months to get them to goal. I'll try to get them to goal right away with a low-dose combination. What about you, Paul? What do you do? 
Yeah, no, you, I mean, you've talked me into it. I, I probably have a very similar approach. Um, I will say that I probably actually will still do individual medications. Then once I find the sweet spot, I might sort of switch over yeah. to the combination tablet. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm, I'm much less likely to try to max out one therapy in the hopes of kind of getting someone there unless right. they're really, really close. Because as you say, the side effects tend to manifest more than the benefits do at the, at the higher yeah. doses. And treating blood pressure, I, I, I think when you really get into it, it's like it's like managing diabetes. There's more than one right answer. There's definitely some wrong answers. But uh, <laughs> like starting someone out a hundred of chlorothaladone, uh, with you know, and and not checking a metabolic panel, um, that would that would certainly be reckless. But I think most of most of the time, you have some time to figure it out, make some changes. And I just I always tell patients, most patients in the sprint trial. Uh, most patients in general just need two medications to get them at the goal blood pressure. And uh, that that's why knowing that information and knowing that the low-dose combination works well, um, that's that's where I've gone to. And in general, Paul, we know that lower is better. And uh, just we're kind of moving more and more towards these lower blood pressure goals certainly if you can if you can get there with a reasonable amount of medications the patient's tolerating tolerating it without side effects um, I'm trying to get go for that 130 over 80 goal for most of my patients now yeah and I, I think one of the places where this came up is, is talking about blood pressure management and younger patients which I think we see sort of more and more often yeah you know, I think with the new ACC guidelines um, there's this sort of class one hypertension where you, you calculate their 10 year risk using the risk calculator. But of course that's only made for patients between the ages of 40 and 70. And that, so we have this sort of non-applicable group to sort of even use that with. And what do you do with these, um, younger patients who are nevertheless meet the criteria for hypertension. And Dr. Cohen made the point that she, you know, as far as we can tell in most studies, as you say, lower is better and it, it just prevents more, um, longer term outcomes. And she said, no, one's going to run the study on 30 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> with antihypertensives and following them out for 30 years. It's just not something that you're going to see, but probably tighter control over a longer period of time is going to prevent um, more cardiovascular bad outcomes. So she has this conversation with the younger patients, um, says, listen, you know, the evidence is a little bit sparse, but if it was me, I would probably want tighter blood pressure control and then has the conversation moving forward like that. So this is probably another group where I'll probably be more aggressive moving forward or at least having sort of a more... Um, forward-moving discussion about blood pressure control rather than just sort of checking in perpetuity, which had been uh, kind of my MO up until this point. Right. Yeah, because there, there's all this inertia. If someone's not yet on a med or if someone's on a med and you keep getting back those blood pressures in the like 140 range over like high 80s or 90s, and you're just like, ah, it's probably fine. I'll just keep it riding. But I, I do think, especially if I think someone's high risk, uh, I, I try to be more aggressive, especially if they're okay with um, with starting a medication and there's not lifestyle changes we can make to get, get the blood pressure where we need to be. So I, I have become more aggressive about treating blood pressure. Um, of course, with close monitoring and making sure that I think the patient can handle, uh, the stricter target. So Paul, uh, we we did talk about one other thing that this is a quick point to make. She mentioned that hydrochlorothiazide, probably a lot of the times we're dosing it incorrectly. It comes in combination pills many times in a 12 and a half milligram dose. And uh, she said that's practically a homeopathic dose for a lot of patients. Probably 25 milligrams is a starting dose of hydrochlorothiazide for the majority of patients. And uh what about what about chlorothaladone, Paul? I know this is a medicine you love, and uh, this this is not quite as straightforward. Yeah, no, chlorothaladone. It, it is a medicine I love. It is 
pretty potent and you, you do run the risk, particularly of hypokalemia, which I, I've seen if you're not careful. So it's something where, and we've talked with Dr. Topf about this too, where once you start it, you should probably do fairly close follow-up in terms of just checking electrolytes and making sure that everything's where it's supposed to be. But that's that's one that probably you'd be better off maybe even starting at 12 and a half as opposed to hydrochlorothiazide. I think, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. But I, I seem to remember being told that like the, the dosing of those two is equivalent. So like 25 of hydrochlorothiazide is the same as 25 of chlorothalidone, but I don't, no, that she, seems to not actually be the case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and she made the point. It, it's more potent. So uh, typically, uh, like I almost think of chlorothalidone as being like twice as potent. Um, and so, yeah, so sure. essentially chlorothalidone, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to come in a 12.5 milligram tablet. So most most of the time, you either have to tell the patient to cut a 25 milligram chlorothalidone in half and take half a, half a tablet every day, or you could tell them it's so long acting, you could actually take them, tell them to start off with 25 every other day, and then you could always go to daily if you decide you want to increase the dose. But um, that would be the same effective dose if you did 25 every other day. Um, instead of half a tablet a day. So chlorothaldone is definitely one that I've been using a lot more of. I wish it came in more combinations, but and, and that's probably yeah, the limitation, sure. I think, for, for it being used more often. But uh, yeah, let me, um, go on. I was going to say, let me employ one of your teaching methodologies okay. um, as and sort of transition us forward if you're okay. Since we're talking about chlorothaladone, this feels like the right chance to say, you know, if you have someone on chlorothaladone, now let me, let me say this a different way. If you have a patient with chronic kidney disease, um, I've been taught that chlorothaladone is completely off the table. It just, it's not even going to affect the parts that it needs to affect. You may as well not even use these thiazide diuretics and chronic kidney disease. They are in fact worthless. And there's probably no recent data <laughs> to even support their use. Is that correct, Matt? I love that this is catching on, Paul. It's such a great teaching method because <laughs> that, that would great. be, that would be wrong. Of course, the click, uh -huh. the click trial came out in late 2021, I believe it was by Agarwal et al. And uh, we talked about this with Dr. Cohen. This was also covered, I believe, in the Digest, our, our newsletter. And uh, chlorothaladone actually was effective in lowering blood pressure. I think it lowered blood pressure by about 10 points in these patients with CKD. They found it was safe to do this. Um, we're still waiting for long-term outcomes data from this, but... Uh, patients with CKD, they tend to be a little volume overloaded, and uh, it makes sense that this would work and help to control the blood pressure. And in the CLICK trial, I think something, Paul, like 60% of patients were already on a loop diuretic. So even if they were already on a loop, yeah. it was okay to do this. And uh, what Dr. Cohen made the point of is, is like, yes, you can use it, especially if you're not at goal and you're you're thinking, okay, this person's on an ACE or an ARB, um, what's my next agent? You can use diuretics in patients. You just have to monitor them. And uh, she likes, uh, as far as loop diuretics go, so chlorothaladone would be the thiazide uh, diuretic that to go to. Um, loop diuretics, she mentioned torsamide, 20 milligrams is probably her go-to because it's a longer acting loop and it's uh, and it can be dosed once a day as opposed to bumetanide uh, or furosemide, which have to be dosed twice a day. So I would consider all these in play now for my patients with stable CKD where I'm trying to get better blood pressure control, especially if they have edema. I think then it just, it makes sense. But Paul, what what about ACEs and ARBs? How how can we use those in CKD? Because surely that sounds way too dangerous. 
I, you know, I was just, it's funny, I was going to turn that around and ask you that, too. So first of all, I, I just want to make the point that, that Dr. Cohen, I think, used the term wildly underutilized in terms of diuretics and chronic kidney disease. But yeah, no, I was going to ask you, you know, it's, did you say a chronic kidney disease patient on an ACE or an ARB? Surely that is malpractice, because <laughs> that's the medication that will send them screaming over and then stage renal disease, and you'll probably end up starting hemodialysis shortly thereafter. Perhaps you misspoke. Um, I did not. Can Paul. we use ACEs and ARBs in chronic kidney disease? I did not, and I, I thought this was this was crazy. I mean, part of the case we gave her was like a patient's on hydralazine and beta blockers, and she's like, actually, I don't like hydralazine. It, it can actually worsen edema, can make the blood pressure more labile, so it's not her choice. She actually tries ACEs and ARBs, and uh, you would expect a creatinine bump of up to 30%, and that's okay if it happens. And Paul, talking a little bit about the physiology here, the physiology is that essentially you are taking away some of that hyperfiltration, you're relaxing the outflow from the glomerulus so that you're getting a little bit less of that hyperfiltration, taking some of the stress off of it. So you'd expect with that decreased filtration that you'd have a little bit of increase in creatinine, and that's okay. If the increase is more, like 50%, you got to think about bilateral renal artery stenosis, and maybe those are patients that it's not a good choice for. But creatinine bump up to 30% is okay. Paul, what about hyperkalemia, though? Uh, how, how can we handle that? Because I'm worried about hyperkalemia by patients with CKD if I'm using an ACE and an ARB. Which, you know, I think is a valid concern, especially depending on what combination of diuretics you have those sure. patients on. But, but Dr. Cohen makes the point that um, patients with chronic kidney disease probably tolerate a little bit of a higher potassium than patients who do not have chronic renal insufficiency. So she allows um, a K of up to 5.5. She's fairly comfortable with kind of letting patients ride at. So she, she doesn't panic until over five and a half, I think, if I remember her potassium threshold. So it, good medications, never protective. If you see the, the expected increase in creatinine, that actually means they're working the way they're supposed to. Keep an eye on the K, and if as long as it's less than five and a half, you're probably doing the right thing. If I if I followed what she was telling us, yeah, that's that's exactly it. So this was this was great. She gave us very clear like targets and parameters, and gave us license, Paul, uh, with close monitoring to use some medications for because for CKD, I was just completely at a loss. I had all these patients uh, I was seeing with CKD, and I wasn't really sure what's next. And you can't always just rely on a specialist to take care of them. I like to know what to do myself. Folks, I do a lot of writing as part of my job. I, in addition to the novella-length progress notes that I write, I also write many, many, many emails. I work on show notes and scripts for the curbsiders. I sometimes am asked to give speeches, believe it or not. And unfortunately, I write the way that I talk. So sometimes my writing can be hesitant. It can be redundant. It can be sometimes unclear what sort of tone that I'm going for, which is why I'm glad I have Grammarly there to help me clean up my writing in a way that it cannot help me to clean up my speech. So Grammarly is this free download. It can act as a desktop app, which means it works where you do. And basically what you do is you just sort of feed your projects into it, and then it spits back out these suggestions to help clarify your writing. I can think of a time where I did this with a graduation speech. It gave me upwards of 50 suggestions of ways that I could improve my vocabulary, little punctuation fixes, and ways to sort of improve tones so that it flowed more smoothly and was more impactful overall. Have you ever had a hard time sort of nailing the perfect cold pitch? Grammarly has this free tone detector that makes sure you're making the right impression. Sometimes it's hard to put your ideas that are in your head into clear words, and with Grammarly Premium, you can clear up this confusion with clarity-focused sentence rewrites. You can even convey your confidence with ease when you use Grammarly's Premium Tone Transform. Get to the point faster and accomplish more with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com curb to sign up for a free account, and when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off just for being a listener. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y 
dot com slash curb. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time consuming. Busy doctors shouldn't have to worry about whether or not they are getting the best rates and are seeing all of their available discounts. Trying to research all of your options and make the right decision while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spend hours sorting through numerous insurance options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the disability insurance they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, request your quotes online. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, secure your policy. Be confident that you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With huge discounts for doctors and training and decreased requirements on labs and physicals, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash curbsiders. Again, that's PatternLife.com slash curbsiders. So, Paul, I actually think for interest of time, uh, let's move on to the next episode, which is number 326, Cardiorenal Syndrome. This was part of NEF Madness, as I said, with the great Dr. Joel Toff, a nephrologist, and Dr. Sadia Khan, a cardiologist, and with graphics and production again by Malini Gandhi, uh, Wonderkin Malini Gandhi. So, Paul, to start us off here, the pathophysiology of cardiorenal syndrome, you know, I always thought it was this poor forward flow, but actually it turns out that venous congestion, um, this venous back pressure on the kidney is actually, that seems to be more important because uh, uh, the cardiac index is often normal in these patients um, or not poor enough to explain the rise in creatinine. And in cardiorenal syndrome, so venous congestion, so which is going to speak to the treatment, which is diuretic therapy. This was surprising to me, Paul. You you probably already knew all this. I, I no, I had not, and it was um, it was exciting to hear it framing just that way because also Dr. Toff made the point. Good news because if it's if you're talking about poor forward flow, then we're in presser land, and that's sort of now we're outside of the realm of things that I am or inotropes, I should say, and now we're outside the the realm of things I'm comfortable right. messing around with. But venous congestion, internists do that all day long. So yeah. if it's just a matter of fixing that, then we then we actually have an answer for that. So right. I, I, this was an exciting way for me to think about it, and it makes more sense in retrospect thinking of all the patients that I've treated for heart failure by um, decongesting them very aggressively. Yeah, if patients are. If if patients are frankly hypotensive, obviously that's going to you know affect the kidneys. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the patient that presents with decompensated heart failure and their creatinine's up. Uh, that and they're not hypotensive. This this is believed to be the mechanism. And then Paul, we talked about permissive hypercreatinemia, which I think is the main take home point of this is that that creatinine bump that we all fear when we're diuresing somebody with acute decompensated heart failure is expected. We should expect it. And actually, it doesn't mean we're done um, because I don't know about you, but at some point in my career, I was taught diurese them until their creatinine bumps, then stop and you're done. But what did what did doctors Khan and Dr. Toff tell us about that? It's Well, I think one of the things that I, I, I appreciated was sort of thinking about creatinine is almost analogous to hemoglobin. Like I think we're sort of used to seeing volume contraction where you, um, the hemoglobin goes up as you sort of diurese someone and you're just like, well, this is, you know, contraction, but you can see the same thing with your creatinine. So someone who comes in congested and volume overloaded might have this sort of artifactually low creatinine, if I'm understanding correctly. And then as you diurese all the extra volume off, then you're actually seeing them approach what is probably closer to their true creatinine. So I found that a little bit reassuring. And then more to the point I think that you're making is that 
the number itself is not probably what you should be fixating on is, you know, how are they feeling? Are they doing better? How's, how's their breathing? Do they just overall, like, what's their JVP look like clinically? How are they doing? Because really, it seems more and more important that you actually dry these patients out appropriately and get them all the way back to their baseline and not 75% of the way because the patients that you don't finish the job are the ones that probably come back to the hospital. So not getting quite so excited about the the creatinine and getting more excited about their actual clinical status. And the, the evidence for this clinically, uh, the dose trial, they actually showed improved outcomes in the, when they did a post-hoc analysis. They saw that the patients who actually had a, a creatinine bump seemed like they had better outcomes. And the speculation was probably because we did a better job diuresing these patients uh, and and that's why those patients did better. And uh, we need to we need to get these patients uh, decongested. So use your clinical exam and a bunch of other things. Don't just look at the creatinine and say I'm done. And then Paul, the other thing that they mentioned is that if the patient's not hypotensive, you don't necessarily need to stop the ACE, the ARB. The SGLT2 inhibitor, if someone comes in with a slight creatinine bump and they have heart failure and they've been already on these medicines at baseline, um, you know, clinical picture, just to look at their blood pressure, look at the creatinine, all that stuff, but you don't necessarily have to stop these. And if you are going to stop them, make sure you resume them on discharge because these medicines are very important in the long term. And that's a common mistake that both of our guests mentioned that they, they see made. Yeah, Joel made the, the point, uh, just saying it explicitly, if someone is coming in with this picture that we're describing where they're volume overloaded, like we know the problem. Like this is not pre-renal azotemia. Yeah. They are volume congested, so there's no reason to stop the age of the ARB. You need to do the thing, which is decongest them, um, unless, of course, their blood pressure is not tolerating um, their, their antihypertensives. And, and part of a topic that goes along hand in hand with this is this concept of diuretic resistance which Joel told us about way back on episode 31, uh, diuretics and leg cramps, Paul. This is where we talked about pickle juice. It's a, a curbsider's classic. I have used that successfully with for multiple patients, yeah. 50 dubs. So basically, Dr. Toff's approach to diuretic resistance is when you're, di when you're giving a diuretic to a patient with uh, heart failure, you really want to assess the response to that dose that you gave because there is for loop diuretics there is a threshold that you have to meet and uh for IV for IV versions it should be within minutes certainly within 30 minutes that they start to put out urine if if you hit the right dose and if you're giving it orally it should be within like 2 hours hour 2 hours depending on the agent um so i I don't wait six hours. I go back and I ask in 30 minutes if it's IV or I go back in an hour or two if it's given orally and I check like, have you been making urine? And uh, patients should be complaining about their urine output, Paul, if you're, if you're adequately diuresing them. So that was one of the main things. Make sure you hit the threshold. Um, it's such an important point. If you have someone who's not making urine with 40 milligrams of furosemide, doing 40 milligrams of furosemide twice daily is still not going right. to achieve what you're trying to do. You yeah. have to you have to get them peeing, and then you can increase the frequency. Yep. So step one, meet the threshold. Step two, if you meet the threshold, but you're still not meeting your overall output goals for the day or not taking enough weight off, then uh, increase the frequency to two or three times a day. Or you might even put them on a drip. And Paul, what was the what was the point about the drip? I, I haven't used those as often, but I know Dr. Toff gave us some great points about that. Yeah, no, it's, if we get to drip land, I'm at the point where I probably called in the cavalry at this yeah. point. Um, but, but some are bolder than others. But the point that Dr. Toff made about the drip is there's nothing magical in the mode of delivery other than the fact that you can get the patients to a much higher dose of diuretic, I think was his point. So I, I think it's not so much the fact that it's just continuous, but the fact that you're achieving these higher doses that are hard to achieve with the intermittent... Um, 
the intermittent dosing, if I'm understanding his point correctly. Yeah. And then if if you've you know met their threshold, you've increased the frequency, you're still not hitting your goals, then then we're in sequential nephron blockade territory, Paul, where you're adding on things like a thiazide diuretic to block a different part of the nephron. Other things you can think about are acetazolamide, the mineralocorticoid uh, receptor antagonists like spironolactone, or the newer SGLT2 inhibitors, which I haven't seen used as much in the hospital, but Dr. Khan was saying, I mean, she's in a very specialized practice for heart failure. She was mentioning that she has seen them started on inpatients uh, during their stay um, as part of this sequential nephron blockade. Right. Though she did make the point that's typically instead of getting the patients out the door right. on a good guideline-directed um, regimen. So it started inpatient appropriately, but probably not as part of the acute decompensation. Yeah, that's a good point. If I, if I'm that's a good point. Yeah, she. Uh, I, I should have made that distinction as well for the SGLT2s. But the rest of them would be the thiazides, the cetazolamide, the MRAs. Those were definitely part of the inpatient. And then, Paul, what's the... The big gun one, I have not seen this done in the wild. I, I only just learned about this when reviewing for Neff Madness, this hyperdiuresis, Paul. What is that about, and have you seen it done? I have neither seen it, nor will be bold enough to try it myself. Maybe it'll be the standard of practice someday. <laughs> not going to do that on idea. an outpatient in clinic? <laughs> I know, yeah, sure, why not? I'll first, step one, start my infusion clinic. Step two, start with hyperdiuresis. And step three, um, wait for the subpoena. <laughs> uh, but I'll... But the idea is that you actually you give these patients hypertonic saline um, while still giving them the loop diuretic. And the idea is that there's some hand wavy stuff. And I think Joel would forgive me for saying that about maybe sort of resetting the thermostat or turning off the running aldosterone and angiotensin system, but sort of just kind of confusing the body enough that it starts responding to, to diuretic treatment was kind of how I conceptualized it. So it's um, some people have looked at it. It's but it's, it, it, I think it was an Italian study. Uh, Joel was saying. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't remember the country the study was from. We we'll we'll put some links in the show notes here. But it it has been looked I'm 90% at. Sure. And uh, I'd be yeah. curious, uh, people on Twitter, have you seen people using hypertonic saline for patients with as a hail mary for patients with acute decompensated heart failure? I'm sure there's some people out there in the audience who have seen this in the wild. I I just haven't seen it. I thought it was super cool, Paul. You know, uh, I guess. The last thing about diuretics that probably worth mentioning, bumetanide versus furosemide, any differentiation there that you wanted to point out to the audience? Yeah, the age-old battle. Uh, it's hard to know. Like, I think it's there's probably some institutional variation. Uh, I, 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 t I tend to see people reach for furosemide a little bit more frequently than it seems to be changing over the past five years or so. Um, but for no good reason that I can tell, furosemide in terms of oral bioavailability is wild like it's anywhere between like 10 and 90 something percent so that it, it's not very consistent as opposed to bumetanide which has fairly high bioavailability that is consistent so if you're worried about someone who um you know particularly if someone has hef or is someone who's kind of holding on to their fluid in their abdomen which i think we see a fair amount of time and have underlying gut edema that might be a better choice because of the better bioavailability and then the other point is that bumetanide does not seem to be quite, the levels are not quite as dependent on GFR, so you can make sort of minor dose adjustments as opposed to these big swings that you have to take with furosemide. So it's, it's just a little bit less nerve-wracking to deal with in my estimation. Um, so th I think those are probably the, the two big points. When you're when you're in IV land, it probably this stuff doesn't matter as much because the bioavailability is sort of a non-issue, but it, from an oral outpatient regimen, um, yeah. Those are probably the big. Yeah, if you're if you have a patient, if you have the right patient and they're in heart failure and they're on furosemide and you're trying to keep them out of the hospital, maybe switching to bumetanide um, might yeah. be might be something you can try. 
And then, Paul, to bring it home, the, I think the last point we want to make is just a quick one about cardiac biomarkers. Because, Paul, uh, I'm going to use my famed teaching method where I say the wrong thing <laughs> and then you correct me. Great. So, Paul, uh, I don't pay any attention to the troponins or the BNP in patients with uh, C, uh, CKD because it, they're just that's just meaningless. You can't really interpret it. How, how do you approach it? No, I think it's, I've I've made this joke before, but it's one of my favorite things is to check a lab that you'll then completely disregard <laughs> um, because and just explain away with some hand wavy stuff. So it's the it drives me nuts. Um, this is my own personal hobby horse. So I appreciate bringing this up when someone has an elevated troponin in the setting of chronic kidney disease, and it's just sort of waved away. It's like, well, they have CKD, so of course they have an elevated troponin. Which, if you take three steps back, is just an absurd thing to say. Uh, you can make the point that that is probably nothing immediately intervenable. So like these are not someone who needs to be rushed off to the cath lab necessarily. Um, but it's also not meaningless. Like it, it's, it has, uh, it's a poor prognostic indicator. Um, you know, we, we know the patients with chronic kidney disease, you know, cardiovascular disease is like they're the major cause of death right. in these patients. So I, I think it's helpful in terms of at least risk stratifying and you should, you should take it seriously, even if you may not be doing something exciting, like willing them through doors, um, into the cath lab or something like that, you should still pay attention and pay notice to them. Um, so that, that's my thought about troponins. And I think BNP, I know sometimes are often discounted in terms of patients with chronic kidney disease, that BNP might also be sort of chronically elevated. How how do you approach that? How do you deal with sort of this chronic elevation that you sometimes see? Is it does that make it I, I didn't have I it? didn't have a great approach to this beforehand. I, I often would expect it to be elevated and not be surprised when I see an elevated number. Dr. Khan mentioned that she actually likes to look at the relative change compared to prior values that she has, and she finds that helpful. So I, I think that's probably the way that I'll be using it. So, uh, it is, uh, for, for my patients with CKD, just looking at this relative change in it, um, we're not suggesting people trend this during a hospitalization to figure out when the person's decongestion, I, decongested. I wish it worked that way. Uh, it doesn't work that way, but it is. But, but nothing it can does. Be, it can yeah. be helpful to, you know, to see the relative change from like prior times when the patient was maybe doing better. But that's it. So uh, a lot of cardiology tonight, Paul, a lot of great pearls. People can go back and listen to the full episodes if they haven't heard them, because certainly we couldn't do them, uh, you know, go over every single thing. But uh, this is just a little taste of what those episodes were They're like. They're so good, everybody. I I cannot stress how much I hate the sound of my own voice. And then I hear the things I say. I'm like, what a pretentious tool. <laughs> but it's like they, they're the episodes are so great the guests are so knowledgeable and, and the, the teaching points they make are so solid it, it really is worth a listen if this is if this was helpful to you and with that paul will you take us to an outro happy to do so this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy <laughs> Great. Get your show a little bit too much confidence, really. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. So we want your feedback. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Or you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that most episodes are available for CME. The two individual episodes we talked about, number 321 and number 326, have individual CME available for them. And I'd like to give a special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Malini Gandhi. 
uh, who did both of the episodes we talked about, and to the production team at Podpaste, who produced and edited this episode. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and of course, the great Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Paul, with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Oh, spectacular as always, Dr. Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye. 